Good morning, everyone. It's a blessing to be here together and to open God's Word together. Um, This morning, I'd have you open your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I'll make a few comments by way of introduction. Many of us are familiar with the phrase, you are what you eat, or we've heard that phrase before. And the basic idea as it relates to our physical bodies um, is that we are or we are made up of what we ingest, what we take in. What you eat, the kinds of foods that you eat, how much you eat, all make up who you are physically as a person. And as true as that is physically, it is also true spiritually. What you ingest, spiritually speaking, makes up the essence of who you are and impacts your spiritual health and your spiritual growth. So in our text today in 1 Peter, um, the Apostle Peter highlights for these believers what is essential what is essential for their spiritual growth. So let's read the first three verses together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And uh, and then we'll meditate upon these verses. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking... As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. May God bless the reading of his word. When you read this letter that Peter is writing to these believers, I think you can really get the sense that he has a genuine concern for their spiritual well-being. And that he desires to see them grow up spiritually. Seeing things grow, um, seeing things mature, I think is a natural desire that we all have. Um, whether it's um, gardening, seeing plants grow up. Um, any, of, any of us who have a garden enjoy watching plants that are planted in the ground grow up and eventually bring forth fruit. Um, the same is true of rearing children. Um, for those who are parents, you, you know how much joy there is seeing your children grow. That's part of one of the best parts of being a parent is just of being a parent is, is watching your children grow and mature. We love to see things grow and mature. And as true as that is, again, physically, it is also true spiritually. When you look at Peter, um, the other apostles, Paul, John, all of these spiritual fathers, there's, there's many references and many indications within scripture that you can see that they truly desired and loved and, and longed for those who were under their care to grow up spiritually. Um, I think of verses like John says, um, in his epistle, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Or Paul, who said to the Philippians, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, being confident of this very thing that which he, this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And Peter had similar sentiments that we can see here, this desire that those who were under his care, who were under his oversight, he desired their spiritual maturity. 
and he is encouraging their spiritual growth. And in the verses that we read here today, the Apostle Peter describes what is essential for spiritual growth. That is how we can grow up spiritually. And it's an important question for all of us to ask ourselves. But before we ask ourselves the question, how can we grow spiritually, which Peter answers in our text today, first we need to ask the question, what is spiritual growth? What is spiritual growth? I think there's a lot of fuzzy ideas that that many of us have in our mind of what spiritual growth is. Um, We can think of someone who, in our minds, maybe is spiritual, and we, we try to we can have a lot of different viewpoints on what it actually means to grow up or be spiritually mature. Does spiritual growth mean that we just think or talk about spiritual things a lot? Is it mean that we just read or memorize a lot of scripture or we participate in a lot of spiritual activities, church, Bible class, small groups, whatever it might be? You know, all of these things are good. All of these things are very good activities that I think make up what a spiritual person is. But sometimes we get this idea or we look at somebody and think, wow, they're, they're a really spiritual person. And we have to stop for a moment and really consider what it means to be spiritually matured, what it means to grow up or be growing spiritually. Those people may be spiritual, but do those things that they are doing really make up the essence of what true spiritual growth is? What is true spiritual growth, and what does it look like in the life of a believer? Thankfully, the scripture gives us insight into what it means to grow up spiritually, to be spiritually mature. And there's many verses we could look at, but I think one that that sticks out in my mind as a good framework of what it means to grow up spiritually um, is this text that we have. But also another text in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and I'll just read them quickly. From This is Paul speaking to the Colossians. He says, From the day that we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now that verse is so full and so rich, we could probably spend a whole sermon talking about what that really means. But really, I mean, some of the main points of of what he's saying here, he's talking about being filled with the knowledge of God's will, so having that spiritual wisdom and understanding, and from that, or so that, it will produce in our lives, that we can live lives that are pleasing to God and produce fruit in our lives. And then also that we would continue to increase or grow deeper, have a, have a, a deeper, more accurate, more complete understanding and knowledge of who God is. I think that verse describes so well what it means to grow up spiritually and to be spiritually mature, biblically speaking. And that can contrast us, that should challenge us to contrast the image that we have in our mind of what it means to be spiritual and to grow, be growing spiritually and be mature and what the scripture says. And what Paul wants, wanted to happen in the lives of these Colossians believer, and this is what Paul wanted to happen in the lives of these Colossian believers. So the question that um, we're dealing with in our text today, though, is not necessarily what it looks like to be spiritually mature, but how 
this spiritual growth takes place in our lives. For, and, and really the highlighted verse is verse 2, where it says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. That ye may grow thereby. And when I read these verses, when I've spent time studying these verses, I saw three things that Peter identifies as essential for spiritual growth. Three things that Peter identifies as essential for spiritual growth. And if you're taking notes, you can write these three things down. They come from the three verses of this text. Verse 1, 2, and 3. First one is killing sin. The second is desiring the word. And the third is experiencing God's grace. Killing sin, desiring the word, and experiencing God's grace. Now, before we go any further, before we get into these three, um, I think we need to establish the fact, um, and just sort of lay it down right up front, that spiritual growth is not something that we produce. Spiritual growth is not something that we can produce in and of ourselves. As much as we are involved in the process of spiritual growth, very involved, and we'll see that from our text today, ultimately spiritual growth is a work of God. And I think 1 Corinthians chapter 3 paints that picture so clearly. This is Paul speaking. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God gave the increase. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but God who gives the increase. It is God who brings spiritual growth in our lives. It is nothing that we produce in and of ourselves. We take actions, and we need to be very intentional in that, as we will read in our text today. But in the end, we must acknowledge that it is God who brings about spiritual growth. God who God brings spiritual growth. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Spiritual growth is not simply... um, Comes, does not simply come about through focus and effort and determination on our part, though those things are required. Um, oftentimes, in fact, spiritual growth, when it happens in our lives, sometimes we don't even realize it's happening. And we, we only look back after and we think, wow, look at what God has done in my life to bring about this spiritual growth. Ultimately, spiritual growth comes from the Lord. So let's keep this in mind as we go through these verses together and see how spiritual growth actually takes place in our lives. So, first and foremost, before we talk about how we can grow spiritually, or talk about ingesting the milk of the Word, because I think that really seems to be the highlight. Verse 2 is the highlight of this this, um, text or this instruction of how we can grow about spiritually. Before we talk about what we must ingest, the spiritual milk of the word, we must talk, Peter talks first about what we must put off so that we can actually digest that word. What we must put off so that we can digest the milk of the word. He says in verse 1, Wherefore, lay aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking. So the first Step in the battle for spiritual growth, as it were, is killing sin, putting sin off in our lives, laying it aside. In order for spiritual growth to take place, sin must be decreasing in our lives. 
Spiritual growth and sin in our lives work in opposite proportions to each other. If if we are to grow spiritually, if our, if our growth is increasing, sin must be decreasing. And and Peter starts this second chapter here in his letter by saying the words, therefore, or wherefore, lay aside all of these sins. Lay aside all of these sins. Now, he says wherefore, or because of what he just said. And, and I'll just give a quick recap of what we just read in the previous verses. And it is this. He talked about back in verse 22 that our souls have been purified and and that, that has happened as a result of us being born again in verse 23. It says, we have been born again by the word of God unto an unfeigned love of the brethren. So he gives this command that we should love one another with a pure heart fervently because we have been born again. That's the natural overflow of what happens to a life or to someone who has truly been born again. So he says, therefore, therefore, because of all of this, lay aside or rid yourself of all of these sins, malice, guile, hypocrisies, envy, evil speaking. We'll get to these in a minute. But he says, he says basically, essentially, rid yourself of anything in your life that quenches your love for one another. Remember, he was just talking about the love, the pure, unfeigned love of the brethren that we should have. He gives that imperative, that command, that we should love one another. And he's saying, therefore, rid yourself of anything that quenches that love. Lay it aside. Take it off like a dirty garment, like dirty clothes. And you come home from work and you're filthy. You you, you take those things off and you throw them away. He says, put them away. Put away any sin, any attitude, any action that destroys your love for one another. And more specifically, your love for your brother and sister in Christ. Because the context here, I think, is in relation to our love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Look back at verse 22. It's a call for brotherly love. He says, love one another with a pure heart. He's talking about the unfeigned love of the brethren. More specifically, the love of the brethren within the body of Christ. Later on um, in chapter 2, all the way through chapter 4, Peter will address how we should relate to unbelievers. And he's very specific in his, his, his commands on how we relate to those outside of the body of Christ. But here specifically, he's talking about how we should love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the context here. And he says, lay aside, put off, rid yourself, therefore, of all malice, all guile, hypocrisies, envies, all evil speaking. All of these things. And I think there's some significance there. The fact that we are to lay aside all, he uses the word all three times in this first verse. We should lay aside not just all of these sins in the sense of the whole list of sins. I think that's true. But all traces of these sins in our lives. We are to lay aside all traces of these sins in our lives. And a few verses come to mind. Colossians 3, 8. But now ye put off all of these. And he goes on to list several other, um, or several sins that we are to put off. And then Hebrews 12, 1. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. All of these th- sins hinder our spiritual growth. They all hinder our spiritual growth, and they must be laid aside. You know, most of us have a very warped perspective of sin. 
We have a warped perspective of sin. Firstly, in relation to God, um, how God actually views sins, views our sin. Sometimes um, we can think that sin just our sin just bothers God, that he just doesn't like our sin. And we don't understand, um, or that I think that, that shows our ignorance in really understanding the nature of who God is, that God is a holy God, and as a result, he hates sin. It is in total opposition to who he is, his character, the essence of who God is. We have this warped perspective, firstly towards God, but also towards our brother and sister in Christ and towards others. Um, we have an inaccurate judgment of the effects that our sin actually plays within the lives of those around us. And we don't see those full effects. God sees them. And that's why I think the scripture is so clear in identifying how we should relate to one another in, and, and not sin, as, as we'll talk about more specifically these sins, um, how we should, how our sin actually tears us apart. The effects that their sin actually has upon each other. These specific sins. If love is what binds us together, then anything but love tears us apart. But somehow we think that these things can coexist. We think that we can still have the, even the remnants of sin in our life, in our life, and it not really have an effect. But that's not true. They can't. They're polar opposites. And Peter paints this, this, this in, a, in a clear and a good light for us. And notice how all of these sins that Peter mentions, malice, guile, hypocrisies, envy, evil speaking, they are all sins that we commit against one another. And ultimately, ultimately all sin is against God. But more specifically, this sin, these, this list of sin relates to sins that we commit against one another. Malice, that's the evil intentions that we have towards one another. And I think that's really where all the other sins flow out of. You know, ultimately, it's the sin that comes from within us. That's where sin comes from. Um, and, and there's verses in, in James, I believe James chapter 1, that talk about um, where sin actually comes from, come from, comes from our lusts within. And that's that malice, those evil intentions that we have towards one another. Guile, that's deceit. That's deceiving one another. Um, hypocrisy, very much related to guile or deceit. Um, that's trying to put on an image that is not right, or oftentimes holding others to a standard that we do not hold to ourselves. These are all sins that we commit against one another. Envy, that's desiring something that belongs to someone else and actually not wanting them to have that. That comes from malice. That comes from the evil heart that is still, the, the, the flesh that we still possess as long as we are here upon this earth. And then evil speaking, slander, um, speaking um, evil against our brother and sister. All of these sins are sins that we are prone to commit to those that we are closest to and those that we love the most. And these are all sins that, in very subtle ways, tear us apart and quench our love for one another. So I would ask you this morning, do these sins exist in your life? This scripture is calling us to examine our lives in the light of scripture and say, do these sins exist in my life? Do these sins exist in your life? Are you envious? Do you speak evil? Do you slander your brother and sister and undermine the command that was given in the previous chapter, in the previous verses, that we should love one another with a pure heart fervently? 
Slowly but surely, stitch by stitch, each of these sins unravel the thread of love that binds us together. And it's sad to see, but it happens. It happens, I think, a lot more than all of us are willing to admit, even here within our own midst, within our own church. Think of the conversations that you have with others. Examine your life in the light of the scriptures and ask yourself, do these sins exist in my life? And allow the scriptures to bring conviction upon you and and then bring about the result of what we'll get to here now. Um, Though we have been born again, our flesh is not born again. And until the day that we die, we will battle against these sins. And we must kill, we must battle and we must kill these sins in our lives that war against the Spirit and drag us back into living according to the flesh, as it says in Romans chapter 8. And that's why we must lay aside and kill, in essence, all of these sins in our lives and mortify the deeds of the flesh. Um, Oftentimes when we think about spiritual growth, we think about um, our relationship with God. And that's very good. That's right. But before we ask ourselves, before you ask yourself, what is your relationship with God? Perhaps a good question to ask yourself is, what is your relationship with sin? What is your relationship with sin? Is sin increasing or decreasing in your life? Are you growing in holiness or is sin taking root and growing? Because sin does not stay idle. You know, we talked about that image of something growing up. Sin grows up as well. Sin, it's like a weed. If you don't pluck it out, it grows. And sin is waiting, in essence, just for the right moment. And there's a song, um, one songwriter put it this way. He said, he's, it's waiting for the night to fall. Sin is waiting for that moment when you let your guard down. It's, it's like it says in, in Genesis, it's crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. That's the essence of what sin is. That's how it operates. That's how it, that's how it works. And really, in our lives, there's only two options. Either we are growing in holiness, that means sin is being put to death in our lives, or sin is growing up in our lives. There's no state of idol where nothing happens. It's either one or the other. It's like leaven. That's its nature. And Jesus used that illustration of how sin just spreads and grows. And that's why there are so many strong warnings within Scripture to kill sin and to pursue holiness because left alone it will take over in your life. And that's why we must be killing sin. You must be killing sin on a daily basis for the rest of your life until the day that you die you will battle against sin and and we must put these things away. Not to gain favor with God. Not to earn your salvation. Um, That has been done by Christ and Christ alone. But for the sake of your spiritual growth. Lay it aside that you may grow thereby. And I think it's interesting to notice how Peter actually addresses um, addresses it here. He lists some very specific sins. We went through that list of malice and deceit, hypocrisies, all of those sins. They're very specific sins that he lists. And I think that tells us something, that it's not just about killing sin in a very generic sense, but the fact that he lists specific sins shows how intentional that we need to be in identifying sin in our own lives and killing that sin. If you start your day with just saying, I want to kill sin today, I'm just going to, you know, pray and ask God, help me to kill sin, it's not going to happen. We need to come under the conviction of the Word of God and specifically identify sins in our lives that are quenching our love for one another 
and rid ourselves of them, kill them, mortify them, as it says in Romans chapter 8. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if through the Spirit you do mortify or kill the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. We must mortify the deeds of the flesh. The law, this isn't a law. Um, The law is powerless to give us victory over sin. But it is through the power of the Spirit, through the power of the gospel working in our lives, that we can kill sin and then ultimately regain that right perspective um, of sin. And um, sin becomes, the right perspective of sin becomes more clear as we kill sin in our lives. Um, And we are slowly moved from that warped perspective of sin to a right perspective of sin. And the cross also becomes more clearly when we see our sin more clearly. One person put it this way, it is important to gain a deep grasp of what the cross, or sorry, it is impossible to gain a deep grasp of what the cross cross achieves without plunging into a deep grasp of what sin is. Shallow thoughts of sin lead to shallow thoughts of God and salvation. Ignorance in the depths of our sin leads to ignorance in the depths of the beauty of Christ. There is growing and spiritual maturing that takes place when we are killing sin in our lives, and it is essential. But not just laying aside sin, but also ingesting that which will bring about our growth. Verse 2 says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. The desire for the word of God is essential. It is essential in our spiritual growth. Just as we are born again by the word of God, as it says back in verse 23 of the previous chapter, so we will grow through the word of God. The word of God is the primary means of your spiritual growth. And in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, All scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So it is true. We are what we eat. We are what we ingest. And it is through the knowledge of God through his word, that we gain a knowledge of God that is the foundation and the structure and the entire framework of our spiritual growth. And throughout, without it, we cannot grow spiritually. It's not just an experiential thing that we have some kind of feelings about God and we just feel close to God. That's not what spiritual growth is. It is having a knowledge, a right understanding of God through his word. That is critical because that is the, that is, it was where our, our, our faith and our growth, our spiritual growth is rooted and grounded as we are built up in the knowledge of God. And it's where true holiness and true spiritual maturity come from. Look what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. He builds upon the same theme again in his second letter. He says, according as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, that's the spiritual growth, through the knowledge of him who hath called us to glory and virtue. So it is through the knowledge of him, of of, of Christ and of God, that we grow up. And as we desire the, the, the milk of the word, and I love the image that he uses here. He, he describes the desire for the word in, in terms of the image of an infant. 
And as newborn babes, he says, like a child desires milk. We understand that the children and milk could go together so well. I have four young children, and, and each of them, I can see the deep desire that they had for their mother's milk and, and, and just this love that they have for milk. So in the same way that a child desires milk, we are to desire the milk of the word. It's such a beautiful illustration that Peter uses here. Just as we are born again by the word of God, we will also grow through the word of God. The desire for the word is essential. And I think it's fair to say that if we don't desire, if we do not have a desire for the word, if you do not have a desire for the word, then there's something wrong. You know, if my child is pushing their bottle away and they don't want it, when I know they should be having their bottle, I would say there's something wrong. There's something wrong if they do not want that bottle. One preacher put it this way. He said, where there is real birth, there will be a real craving. These two things go together. A baby and milk go together. New birth and a desire for the word goes together. Now, Peter is not talking about milk in the sense of um, spiritual immaturity. I know there's an, a reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where, where Paul actually talks about um, the believers. He says, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hereunto ye were not able to bear it, neither were ye able. I don't think Paul, sorry, I don't think Peter here is saying that they should just stay with drinking milk. That's not the case here. What he's talking about is that level of desire that a child has for the milk of the word. And we need to have that same level of desire. And, and he actually commands it to us. This is actually an imperative here. He commands us to desire the milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Just like he desired us to have hope. Just like he desired or he, he commanded us to love one another. Just like he commanded us to be holy. He says, this is a command to desire the milk of the word that we may grow thereby. And it requires some intentionality. And as natural as it is um, in the new birth, sometimes, and I'll just be real and honest, sometimes I think it's a real sentiment that we have is that we don't always desire the word. We don't always have that burning desire in our hearts for the word of God. And sometimes we get stuck in a rut of saying, I am what I am. Um, spiritual growth, it's just not happening in my life. It's not for me. And that's a very sad, sad place to be in. And if you find yourself in that place, I would, I would encourage you with these words that the Apostle Peter gives here and see this, that this is a command to desire the word that you may grow thereby. Just like we need to fight and kill sin in our lives, we also need to fight for joy in our lives. Fight for the joy of the Lord. Fight for the joy of taking in and digesting his word. This is something that we need to fight for when we don't have it in our lives because God commands it of us. And just like the psalmist said, we need to pray, like it says in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Pray that prayer. Open my eyes, Lord. Open my eyes. Give me that desire. Let me see that you are good. And let me have that desire for your word that you have commanded me to have. You know, as, as believers, when God commands us to something, when he gives us a command to do something, as believers, he always gives us the power to accomplish it. 
He always gives us the power to fulfill what he has commanded to do. In the flesh, we can't do it. But in the spirit, we can do it. By God's grace and through his power, all of his commands, we can obey as a result of the work of his spirit. So ask him, pray that he would give you that desire. Like it says in Psalm 19, that the word of God is more to be desired than gold and sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. It's valuable. It's desirable. It's satisfying. But so easily we are distracted and our, in our flesh, our desires wane and we become distracted and become, um, we become intrigued by other things. But he says here, desire, long for, crave for the spiritual milk of the word and pray that God would give you that desire if you don't have it. And finally now, come to the last point. What is essential for our spiritual growth? is that we truly experience God's grace. Verse 3 says, If so be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Whenever we taste something, there is a reaction that happens in our mouth. Some taste and they're disgusted by what they taste. Others taste and they get bored of it after a time. They like it at first, and then they lose their taste. But those who have been born again, those who are killing sin, those who are desiring the milk of the word, have tasted that the Lord is gracious. I want to speak personally for a second to you, because as I have grown and this is, my, this is my own testimony to this. As I have grown and matured spiritually, I can honestly say that I have tasted that the Lord is gracious. He is so gracious to me. As I grow and mature spiritually, as I have gained a, gained a deeper understanding of the attributes of God, of who He is and who I am, as I read within Scripture— as I go through experiencing that word, gaining that spiritual understanding, truly growing and, in, and, and experiencing the grace of God in my life, I can say that I have tasted that the Lord is gracious. He is gracious. A longing to grow spiritually comes from tasting and experiencing his kindness and his goodness. And those who pursue God have tasted his sweetness. It's not a duty. It's not a call to moralism. That's not what Peter is getting at here. But rather, it's a response of a heart that has tasted that the Lord is gracious. And so I ask you, I ask each of you, especially those who do not know Christ, have you tasted that the Lord is gracious? And if you have not, I would invite you to come and taste And drink deep from the well of living water. That is Jesus Christ. I pray that you would come and find satisfaction in your souls. That you would put your faith in Jesus Christ. That you would be saved. That you would believe. That you would repent of your sin. And that you would taste and see as I have tasted and seen. That the Lord is good. He is gracious. And I pray that all of us would have that desire that sincere desire to kill sin in our lives, to long for the spiritual milk of the word, and to truly taste 
and see that the Lord is gracious. That is my desire for each of you. And, and I pray that God would do this work in your life through his grace, that we may all grow up into spiritual maturity. May God bless these words to us today. Amen.